G'day, I'm Josh Kirkman, CEO of Surface for Climate, and I'm really stoked to be bringing you today our first ever episode of our podcast, Car Park Convos, because change starts with a conversation. COP26, we've all been hearing about it for weeks, it's finally wrapped up, and unfortunately, the Australian government didn't do a terribly great job of it. What is fortunate is that there's plenty of great Aussies out there pushing hard to get action on climate in Australia, and they're coming from a diversity of backgrounds and spaces. To launch our podcast, we thought we'd dive into a couple of the goals of COP26 and try to help explain a few of the things that were going on over there so that you, our audience, the surfers of Australia, can engage with the issue and see how you can put your best foot forward. To kick things off, we want to talk about how politicians can create policy to limit warming to 1.5 degrees by 2050, even though that's probably too late. We'd rather see 2030. For this episode, I thought I'd get a uh, a really interesting politician on board who has had uh, some tremendous success so far and has also put her best foot forward fighting for climate action in Australia with her most recent climate bill. Her name is Zali Stegel. Uh, Many people may remember her as Australia's most successful Uh, winter athlete uh, and she was also very successful in unseating a former Prime Minister in Tony Abbott when she entered politics a while back. So please enjoy this conversation with Zali Stegel and thank you so much to Zali for jumping on board our first ever episode of the podcast. Thanks. Well it's with great pleasure that I introduce to the Car Park Convos podcast the one and only Zali Stegel, the member for Warringah. Thank you so much for jumping on the uh, call today, Zali. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, the first question, which we always like to get out of the way, given that it is Surfers for Climate who run this podcast, um, do you surf and, and where's your local <laughs> beat? Where's the place you go? I know you can stand um, up. I, I can surf. Um, <laughs> I was actually a very keen windsurfer as a kid. I was third at the French Championships um, as a junior windsurfer. Um, and wow. I had ended up having to pick between skiing and surfing. So I did have an affinity uh, and windsurfing. So I did have an affinity with the water. When I came to live in Australia, I was really freaked out by sharks. And so for me, yeah. surfing is not relaxing in that sense. I get a, my, my imagination gets the better of me. So I have surfed. I do know how to catch a wave. I'm not very good at it. Um, I ocean swim now. So I, I, I love the ocean. Uh, I, a lot of my girlfriends are keen surfers and they're constantly trying to get me to go away on a surf trip with them. And my husband's a keen surfer all his life. So I'm nearly there. I'm nearly there. <laughs> well, that's, that's, I think um, everyone's nearly there, depend, no matter where they're at on a surfboard or any other craft that they take to the water. But that's impressive. So you were third in, in the French national windsurfing <laughs> titles. What, what, how old were you then? Uh, when I was 14, I was a keen windsurfer. Wow. I came out to Australia and did windsurfing in Australia as well. Um, but then, obviously, I had to choose between skiing. Uh, you know, I wanted to ski at the Olympics and, and, and windsurfing, sure. and so uh, skiing did win out. <laughs> oh, well, thankfully it did because you did pretty well there in the end, um, but we'll get to that later in the podcast. Uh, right now, where... In the middle, COP26 is happening as we speak. We've got um, some of our elected representatives are over there um, doing a job of it. And um, we are 
having this special launch of the podcast to talk about COP26 itself. Um, so to contextualize the first question, I've got some notes here, which you've already commented on. They're rather long notes, but I, <laughs> I needed to have them to make sure the question came out right. But you know, there's a helpful COP26 uh, explained PDF that I downloaded from the website, and it read this. Countries are being asked to come forward with ambitious 2030 emissions reduction targets that align with reaching net zero by the middle of the century. To deliver on these stretching targets, countries will need to accelerate the phase out of coal, encourage investment in renewables, curtail deforestation, and speed up the switch to electric vehicles. Now, you've recently reintroduced your climate change bill, um, with you adding that it was time to pass the bill and not the buck. I really like that. Um, debate on the bill is adjourned, I think, at the moment whilst we record this or whether there's been another debate and I missed that. Um, do you hold out any hope that the Prime Minister can deliver any commitments at COP26 that might see Australia reach an authentic net zero by 2050 without it actually being legislated here at home? No, I don't have much hope. And I know in your intro you said, you know, we have Australian representatives at COP26. The question is, are they doing us proud? And I don't think mm -hmm. they're doing us proud. Um, mm -hmm. No, unfortunately the, the Morrison government has a real agenda to delay action actually around reducing our emissions. So we've gone from the denier argument, you know, we don't have to do anything, climate change isn't real, to the, de to the delaying tactic, which is, um, we're committed, we're going to, you know, we're committed to net zero by 2050, but our plan doesn't actually require us to stop doing anything. So the current government's plan is they're not reducing, they're not um, they're not stopping to open any more coal and gas, you know, fields. They continue to approve more. Um, but at, at some point in the future, we will be able to offset them, hopefully the emissions from those industries uh, it's a bit of a unicorn, like it's a fantasy that we can continue doing all the things that are bad and somehow we're going to offset them. So to me, it's terrible, terrible governance and really bad accountability. So the climate change bill is a frame, it's a, it's a law to basically say, right, we lock into law our target of net zero by 2050. We get there with five-year emission reduction budgets. So think of, you know, a normal budget. Every five years, you update your budget. How is it going? Are we, tr are we on track? Do we need to get more ambitious or not? Because you don't want to get to 2030 or get to 2040 and think, oh, you know, <laughs> we a bugger, we haven't, we haven't been doing enough. How are we going to get to net zero? So pretty important that we do the work early because the way it works as well, you actually have to dramatically decrease emissions by 2030. So the bill, the climate change bill, yes, debate is adjourned at the moment. It's technically in the government's hands to allow debate to continue or we can have a vote for it in the House of Reps um, and I need a majority. So I tried to do that last week while I was in Parliament and we, the, the government used its numbers to block the motion that we debate the bills. So obviously really important for people to put pressure on their local members to push that this should be debated and it should be an open vote in Parliament. Because what we've got is, you know, the coalition is a partnership between the Liberals and the Nationals and what we have is a secret agreement with the Nationals um, and they are very much determining our climate policy and they don't uh, support a transition away from fossil fuels. So 
the Prime Minister and the Minister for, I call him the Minister for Delaying Emissions Reduction, um, <laughs> are at COP26 and they are not delivering any plan to actually accelerate emissions reduction in Australia. It seems like that's the case. And um, with that, what is the point of even showing up to these meetings? Like why why do they go through the rigmarole if it's only to um, to be obviously seen to delay? Like like is it a is there a strategy in that on an international scale though? Like it just doesn't seem to make any sense to to rock up to these meetings and just stall people because it probably like it does make us look like the the true laggards of this internationally. Is that right or fair to say? Well, that- there's definitely a strategy for Scott Morrison, and that is getting re-elected. So let's be clear, we have a federal election coming in the next six months, and it was untenable for him not to go to COP26. So imagine COP26 is the Olympics of international policymakers, right? It's every mm. key country is turning up, putting their best foot forward. Have they got a winning plan or not? What influence is a country going to have in the future, in the new economy, new technologies and all the opportunities. Now, we're talking trillions of dollars being invested around the world on the transition to clean technology, right? Green hydrogen, green steel, renewable energy, really important. So you have to be there. Like, you know, Mm. if you miss out on going to the world champs or the Olympics, you don't exactly get taken seriously. So it was important internationally for Morrison to go. But it's really a big greenwashing exercise because what he's announced is quite empty and so he is facing an election, a federal election, within the next six months. And so this was all about appearing to do the right things, you know, appearing to be worried about climate change and committing to net zero by 2050 but not really uh, presenting a plan to transition. I mean, look, the, the Australian pavilion at COP26 is um, sponsored or supported by Santos, which is an mm. oil and gas company, right? So, I mean, that says it all, really. Um, it, it's it's just you know, it, it's 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 quite incredible, really. I mean, that appearance or the greenwashing, you know, that's a that's a that's a word that usually gets reserved for the for the corporate sector when they want to, um, you know, launch an it. Uh, an activity to kind of cover up that they're doing something a little bit bad over here so they do something nice and green over there. Um, the Australia Institute um, released their Climate of the Nation report and it said that seven out of ten Australians want to see pathways and targets that align with the Paris Agreement goals. Um, so what you're saying is that this this effort by Morrison can be seen as a, as a way to satisfy or try to convince those seven out of ten Australians that he is taking climate seriously um but why is it that um i guess when it comes to the coalition like they're a conservative party but there are lots of other conservative parties around the world um that actually take really bold steps on climate and the uk would have to be a, a good example of that like in your opinion like what do you see is the challenge at home here with conservatives and them being able to get on board with dealing with something like climate change and actually making policy for it. What, what's the sticking point for Australian conservatives that international conservatives don't so seem have. to have? No, and look, mm. the, the climate change bill is modelled on legislation 
uh, a climate change act that was passed in the UK in 2008, so 13 years ago. Go. Like we're, we're just a yeah. little bit behind. Um, and mm. it was passed with bipartisan support. So, and it survived, mm. you know, it's, it's been supported under conservative governments. Look, in Australia, I think the difficulty is the nationals, you know, so uh, the conservative side of politics, the coalition, is an, it's a secret agreement between the nationals and the Liberal Party. Um, and basically they, there, is a, there is a minority rump in that group that doesn't accept the science, that doesn't believe in climate change. And so they will, they will wreck the joint before they come on board to do anything proactive. Uh, we've seen Barnaby Joyce, you know, <laughs> in action, um, and he is holding all good policy to ransom. And that's why this this really should be an open debate, a little bit like the same-sex marriage, where we should mm. be openly talking about what is good for Australians in the future. This shouldn't be a partisan politics thing. It should, it's not a left or right issue because let's get real, it doesn't matter how you've voted or your life, when global impacts hit, they will hit everyone equally. Like it's not going to discriminate yeah. that somehow you're going to be saved. So um, it really is something that will impact us all. I think that is a major sticking point in Australia. It's also a minority of, um, you know, fossil fuel companies who are big donors to the major parties and so they are buying influence. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Big Deal, um, but there's yeah. a lot of money in Australian politics and a lot of influence. So communities are kind of, their community voices are being just drowned out by big money who are buying government to get the outcomes they want. And I think Santos being at COP26 is case in point, right? So mm. it is about, uh, but you, you can't accept that face value greenwashing. You have to question it. So whoever your local MP is, especially if they're a coalition MP, it's really important to actually hold, you know, hold them responsible for their actions, for the actions of their party, for the policy. You know, it's not good enough to make promises every three years in an election and then not do anything really consistent with those promises in between while you're in Parliament. So I, th mm. I think it's really important for everyone to become so much more aware and savvy to, um, to the amount of gaslighting that happens from politicians. Hmm. I just want to pick up the uh, the the turn of phrase you used a minority rump in the national party. I thought that was quite nice. Um, yeah, we, the listener can uh, take from that what they will. Uh, do you think then you you refer with like I, I had a look at the legislation or or your your bill that you were putting forward, and it it does seem to transcend political um, boundaries, and it also has these things like I believe a climate change commission, which is an apolitical body that would oversee these. I'm guessing these five year budget or you know the the kind of reflection on progress. Um, you refer to the same-sex marriage debate as a as an example of kind of taking the politics out of it and going for a conscience vote. We ended up there with a plebiscite on the issue because the politicians wanted to let the people actually have their say. Is that, in your opinion, like a, a good outcome from your efforts here, like actually a plebiscite on the issue of do we take meaningful action on climate change or not? Is that something that's on your horizon when you look at the the future implications of your bill and the progress that you're making? Um, well, it's an interesting way of looking at it. I think the, mm. the jury's already out in terms of 
Um, you know, we've already got the judgment from the Australian people when seven out of ten want action on climate change. So I don't think we need a plebiscite yeah. to say, do we want to commit to action on climate change, right? I think yeah. that's there. But in terms of do we want to legislate our commitment to make sure we have accountability, because that's a really key piece that's missing. You can get these promises from government, right, and a few months out for an election, the promises are going to come thick and fast. But mm. what actually really happens in between, what true policy measures get done, where is the money? Like we still, uh, public money still supports fossil fuels to a tune of 80 to 1 compared to how much is invested in renewables. So it's huge disparity yeah. still. And yeah. so, you know, promises are not enough. It's got to be in policy. Think the Reserve Bank for how we manage the economy. The Reserve Bank doesn't dictate to the Treasurer what the budget should be. But the mm. Reserve Bank can um, adjust interest rates, you know, mm. um, as needed depending on how we're travelling economically. So yeah. what the commission that I've proposed would do is it would advise governments, it's still up to government to determine the policy, but it advises government on whether it's working or not. So are the mm. policies delivering the results we need? What is the level of ambition we need to achieve the ultimate goal? Um, mm. And how are we going across the spectrum of, you know, we'd have to talk about our risk assessment, our preparedness for, you know, keeping communities safe. So you mentioned before when discussing around why is it that the conservative parties in Australia seem to be so different from conservative parties overseas, and you said that there's certain questions that constituents should be asking of their representatives, whether they be from the Coalition or Labor Party. What, what are some examples of some of those questions that you think um, individuals should take to their MPs when it comes to this type of discussion? And bearing in mind that it's such a complex issue, so a lot of people really don't know where to start. So what are some of the questions they can ask? Um, well, I think one of the main, if you're talking about um, MP who has been the MP, right, it's not a new MP, then the question is mm. what have you done? Because once they're part of a major party, it becomes this justification of the collective. You know, it's a collective that has done something and they kind of go with it. But their individual actions as members of parliament should matter. I think they should matter. Mm. Um, so when it comes to integrity and transparency and good governance, you know, uh, they're all issues where your individual vote as an MP should matter. It shouldn't just be a proxy vote to the whole party. So it's important to ask your MP just what have they individually done? How often have they spoken about good, you know, protecting the environment and climate on the votes, you know, every time they've had a vote, what have they, how do they approach a vote? What do they do? Because I can, let me give you an insider view of what happens in Parliament. The MPs of both Coalition and Labor, they come in and they get given a pager and that pager tells them where to go, what to do and how to vote. And I swear if you asked half the MPs what did you vote on today, I don't think half of them even know. Like they don't even know when they're voting on something that's going to impact millions of lives. It's going to impact the environment. It's going to impact our economy, you know, um, and yet I just don't think they engage with it. They hand over, it's like a proxy vote, they hand it over to the party room and then off it goes. And I don't think that's, that's representing your community. I, I don't know if people would feel that that's, what they expect of their member of parliament. So I think be, 
be a bit more demanding on your member of parliament. Don't let them get away with the, you know, the the nice kind of motherhood statements of what they're doing or what their party's doing. Ask, be specific about asking, but what are they individually doing about it? Uh, I've never heard of this pager. That's um, that's quite the revelation. Um, maybe they should leave the other pager that sends them the message with their community members, and they can like send through what to do instead. That's remarkable. Do you think that's to do with being so busy that they just have to be guided like that, or is it actually just a really lazy approach to doing policy and decision making? Uh, it's got nothing to do with being busy because I can assure you there's a lot of lunches and a lot of drinking in Parliament, <laughs> so they're not busy. Um, this is it, great. It, it is to do with group control, you know, collective, that they are all expected to toe the line and stick wow. to the party line. And so there's very little individual thought that goes on. Um, you know, the questions in question time get written by the party um, the speeches they do have to be checked off. They have to make they have talking points, you know, that they have to talk about issues along certain lines. There's very little individuality um, in, in allowed in the room. And, and and look, everyone will say, well, you know, I'm free to do what I want. But on both sides, then they have to face pre-selection. And if they haven't done toed the party line, they get challenged at pre-selection. And they're always very motivated by I guess, personal ambition that they don't want to rock the boat, they want to get pre-selected, they want to stay in the job, so they'll do what's expected of them. And and it's I just think it's a real corruption of democracy. It's not what we're there to do. So a contrast, I will always publish the list of legislation that's due to be debated in Parliament the weekend before I go, as soon as I get it, basically. Um, I get cool. feedback from my community on those bits of legislation um, I explain to my community how I voted and why I voted that way. So what my thinking process is, what consultation I've done, what feedback I've received, um, is it good law, you know, what's the problem it's trying to fix. Um, I let people know where they can participate, you know, uh, do we have an inquiry where you can make submissions, um, you know, and when I speak on an issue in Parliament, I do it after having consulted with people in the electorate on what are their views, you know, because uh, it's not just about mm. my view, it's about representing the electorate. Um, so, you know, I, I think we can do so much better uh, and I think the independent model really delivers on that, that it's community-based and representing community. Wow, wow. that's um. I'm just a bit blown away by the pages still. I think I'm still processing that reality and letting my mind trail off on who's actually running the, the show. Um, let's get on to another question. It kind of dives into your past a little bit, but like you, you're Australia's most internationally successful alpine skier, according to a couple of websites I did a bit of background on. Um, you're a bronze medalist in slalom, and I do remember it as a kid watching you win, uh, get that bronze, and that was amazing. Um, that was in the 1998 Winter Olympics, and you're a world championship gold medalist in 1999. After that, you studied law, and you were eventually admitted as a solicitor and then admitted to the New South Wales Bar in 2008. So during all this time, like, were you political? Um, did you always have Canberra in your sights? And I guess <laughs> what motivated you to run, not only for the seat of Warringah, but to dare to run against a former Prime Minister in Tony Abbott? Um, 
look, I wasn't overly political, but I was conscious, you know, I was I was busy. Like I retired yeah. from sport. I had a couple of kids. I had my career, mm. you know. Like everyone, you get really busy in your own life, right, but mm. then always aware of the issues, the big issues. And I was just getting more and more frustrated that such an important issue like climate change was just being, you know, just abused for um, political gain, and I think Tony Abbott did that. He politicised mm. that debate purely for his gain and he spread a lot of misinformation. So um, I was getting more and more outraged at the status quo that politics weren't representing us, incredibly outraged at, um, you know, like at women's issues, at inequity, like um, that yeah. really was, you know, as a professional woman that was really annoying me. Um, mm. and, uh, and obviously the same-sex marriage vote, you know, it was just event after event. And I really felt our politics were broken, to be honest, in Australia where the major party machines are so focused on the holding power that they are not mm -hmm. concentrating on what are the good things we need to do for the future, you know, what are the good long-term policies we need. Um, mm. And so for me, I got to that point where I thought, well, it's not good enough to complain about this and rail against the TV at home. Um, I've got to do something about it. And, um, you know, you, ca you just can't be... Uh, on the sidelines, you know, you've got to get involved. Um, and I felt that the best way I could get involved was to give people in Warringah a choice between, mm. you know, they've had a Member of Parliament who's been there for 25 years, who's known to be very disruptive, who has, you know, been incredibly uh, destructive on climate policy in Australia, um, and I think fairly misogynistic. So to give them an alternate choice, you know, because... Australia has a great system of compulsory voting, but you have to identify with someone on the ballot box. You know, if you if you don't see someone there that you want to vote for, it becomes very, very hard. You're very disillusioned. So for me, it was about offering a new choice, a different choice to people. Um, and resoundingly, that was really well accepted and people were really looking for that. And if you look at it now, the growth of you know, independence in other seats. There are over 80 seats now that have independent movements. So people are really looking for a new way of doing politics, you know, a new wave of, of, of politics, of business. You know, the, there is a, you can have a good social uh, and, and environmental, you know, sort of governance. You can have a strong sense of responsibility for your legacy and still want to be successful in business and, you know, like it, it, it's they're not mutually exclusive. People are looking for meaning in their lives and meaning in their business and their work and they, what they, they want what they do to matter, to have a, a purpose. Um, and I think there is no greater purpose than what our legacy is going to be, you know, what are we leaving our kids and grandkids in terms of our natural environment and, you know, at the moment we are just on track for the worst intergenerational debt ever. Mm. I would probably say you didn't just give the people of Warringah a choice, you gave them a no-brainer. Like it's um, it, like looking, you know, 
a, a former Olympian who knows how to focus and get things done. I did leave out the bit of uh, being a mother as well, and that's a, that's a typical bloody bloke faux pas right there. So I'll cop that one. But you know, like uh, it was just really cool. Like, do you do you think? Do you look back? Was there any moment on that journey? And maybe it's a good way to kind of wrap up the podcast a bit because we're getting to around that half half an hour um, mark, and that's the sweet spot. So maybe like looking back on the journey so far. Was there self-doubt when you were coming into it? Because a lot of people who might step up and see you as an inspiration, they will go through all the emotions on the way to either a victory or uh, a loss. So, And you're someone who's probably dealt with those things in your sporting career and life as well. So what's what was your personal journey like there? And then what do you say to those out there who who feel that kind of outrage in the pit of their stomach and who want to go and do something about it? Like, What's your final message to them? Yeah, look, I'm human. I can assure you I have my moments of doubt and what am I doing? This is crazy. But I'm also a really big believer in, you know, at the end of your life journey, you're only ever going to regret the decisions you weren't brave enough to take. Um, You know, whatever the outcome of the choices you make, you learn, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, whatever happens, um, you don't regret that because you're all the better for the experience. It's when you don't have the guts to give it a go that really, you know, I think you regret. So I'm a pretty big, big on that when it was sport. You know, I do ultra marathons, um, you know, whether it's career. I'm really <laughs> big on pushing, you know, believing in yourself, but p- pushing your boundaries, pushing it, you know, backing yourself to, 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 to test yourself because you'll never know what you're truly made of until you really test yourself. So... For me, look, yeah, it was daunting, but what's the worst that can happen, right? You can lose. So what? <laughs> You're not going to, yeah, that's not the end of the world. Um, so for me, it really is about you, you just have to get in there and get involved. So my biggest advice for everybody is remember, if you're worried or anxious about climate, you have your three strongest weapons when it comes to climate action. Number one is your vote, right? Your vote is your most powerful weapon be wise with your vote be informed check it make sure it's not a you know donkey vote that you make sure it counts second is what can you do personally you know your you know your energy use is your biggest um, carbon footprint so try and be 100% renewable solar panels if you can but if not a, a renewable provider and third is your money. Your money is your most powerful tool um, in where's your super what who do you bank with? You know, put your money where your beliefs are and put it in somewhere where it's supporting sustainable and low emissions. Um, So they're the three biggest ones, but get involved as well. So around you, it is a growing tribe, the people that are worried about climate, right? There are people in every community. Find them. Find those like-minded people because the more you are, you find your tribe, the more you feel encouraged and empowered to speak up. And there will always, you know, in every in every disruption or revolution, there's a tipping point, um, and at some point, you will have enough people with you voting the right way, making the right decisions, that we will get on top of this wave, you know. And so, we just have to do that. So there you go, the first episode of Car Park Convos. I really hope you enjoyed it. Huge thanks to Zali Stegel for jumping on board. And 
I have to give credit for the cool theme music we've got by my buddy Ben Douglas. So thanks, Benny, for chucking that in for us. So now you've listened to the podcast, you've learned a couple of things. What can you do more to kind of advance your action on climate in Australia? Well, one very simple thing you can do is you can share this podcast episode with your friends. The more people who listen to this type of content, hear from politicians doing their best to change things up in this country, the better. Because the more informed we are as voters, the better decisions we'll make at the ballot box. So please, share this podcast. The other thing you can do if you want to dive a little bit deeper with us, there's two things. Stay tuned for more information about our gas campaign down in the Otway Basin. We're partnering up with some really cool people and organisations to try and see the Otway Basin gas expansion halted. And we're going to be putting a lot of pressure on politicians and also the companies interested in exploring that region of Australia. Australia does not need new exploration in its waters. We need to halt exploration and we need to just wind down what we have. The Otway gas campaign is going to be ongoing because this battle, it's only just begun. So stay tuned for more info there. And please, if you want to get involved, feel free to reach out. We will take all the help we can get. The final thing you can do to get a bit more involved with what Service for Climate is doing is you can join our Sustainable Supply Club. The Sustainable Supply Club was an initiative we launched to try and help surfers lead the surf industry onto a more environmentally sound footing. Currently, a lot of the products that we use in our everyday lives as surfers are unfortunately quite damaging to the environment. So this initiative by us was to bring as many brands and companies that are making sustainable products and to try and lead a change through the surf industry. It's a membership model. The funds raised from it will go towards supporting our work and also expanding the supply club. It's a great way for you to support the brands that are doing good things. You get a bunch of deals and discounts and there's a few free giveaways as well, like a Gary McNeil Taurus twin surfboard for Christmas. So that'd be a nice one to win. Uh, if you want more detail of that, go to our membership page on our website and sign up today. We'd really appreciate the support. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Once again, thank you, Zali Stegel, for your support in jumping on board. And stay tuned for more. Cheers. <laughs>